touching on one hot potato in your state, and that's APRs, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll address another one, and that is the relationship between hunters and your state wildlife agency. And it's a very polarizing relationship in many states, so it's not unique to Michigan. I can tell you without hesitation that what hunters enjoy in this country is unique to North America. There's no place on the planet that the average working class citizen can, can go out and recreate like we do for such a low cost. Thank you for joining Wild Game Dynasty's podcast this week with host Gary Morgan. Before I hand the mic over to Gary, please be sure you subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on nine different networks. Brian Murphy, hey, this is Gary Morgan calling. Hey, good morning. Good morning. How you doing? Man, I'm fantastic. Yeah, it's, uh, hey, uh, here we are in the, uh, uh, kind of the middle of summer, we might call it, and uh, we got a lot of the summer left and a lot of hot days, but here I'm up in Michigan, and of course you're familiar with uh, Michigan very well, but I'm kind of whining about the uh, mid-80s today, uh, but boy, I, that would be, uh, that'd be maybe to put a wool sweater on where you're where you're living yeah yeah i live in in georgia of course and uh we're not known for cool summer weather uh so it's been you know in the in the low to mid 90s but what's really brutal this time of the year is we're seeing anywhere from 80 to 97 percent uh humidity uh when you get those kind of humidity and temperatures together it uh, makes for a little bit of a, a tough summer but uh you know hey been out seeing chicken trail camera photos lately we got some fantastic bucks this time of year you can really start to see what you what you've grown for the year and the, uh, the antlers are getting uh probably 75 80 percent developed and so uh wow it's, it's an exciting time too nice hey brian murphy what i'd like to do is uh, for our listeners um i'd like to kind of dial back and have you do a introductory of yourself a short little bio that way uh, hey i know who you are and a lot of people just by me introducing your name, we'll say, hey, that wow, that's Brian Murphy. I know who that is. I know he's what he's all about. But for those that don't, because a lot of times, uh, I, well, I had a guy that tells me, yeah, I downloaded your podcast, and we're heading up north to the uh, cottage on the lake. He says, I listen to it. And then my wife, notorious, will say, who's that? So <laughs> No, that's, that's fine. Yeah, I, you know, I, I have been uh, had the good fortune of working in the, in the deer world my entire professional career, so I have made a lot of friends from – uh, all over the, all of the U.S. In fact, even overseas. But uh, you know, I grew up like like many of your listeners, just an avid hunter and outdoorsman. I was a, a hunter, an angler, a trapper back in the '70s when when the trapping days were at their heyday. And I uh, grew up in rural Oklahoma and uh, was blessed at the age of 12 to to read an outdoor life magazine. And I uh, read an article about a deer biologist working probably in Michigan or Pennsylvania. Frankly, those were you know the, the leading states back in the '70s that had wildlife biologists doing deer work. And I uh, read an article and uh, did what all 12-year-olds do, and mean a meeting with my parents and said, "I have decided what I'm <laughs> going to do in life." And uh, and they said, "What is that, son?" And I said, "I'm going to be a wildlife biologist and I'm going to work on deer my entire life." And they said, "Son, is that a real job and does it actually pay anything?" And uh, I've spent the last, the next uh, 30 or 40 years trying to answer those questions, but uh, it has led me down a path which uh, uh, took me to Texas for an undergrad in, in, uh, in wildlife biology, and I had a chance then to meet the famous Al Brothers and work on some very famous ranches, do some very cool pioneering deer capture work and, and deer management, and, and uh, that experience got my foot in the door at the University of Georgia uh, to do my graduate work under the the famed deer biologist, uh, Dr. Larry Marchin and Dr. Carl Miller, and I uh, was able to, to, to do my, my master's degree on whitetails, uh, specifically scent communication and whitetails. 
Uh, and uh, before I graduated, those two gentlemen actually hired me on to stay at the university uh, to do uh, deer research, uh, to head up their deer research program, actually be the liaison between the, the staff, uh, the, the, the professors and the students. And I did that for a short stint. Uh, then had a, a unique opportunity to, to move to Australia and manage deer for the Australian government and be the first deer biologist in that country. Wow. Uh, spent four, four wonderful years there, made a lot of wonderful friends, and introduced quality deer management to the, the land down under. Yay. And, yep, and, uh, and then came back and uh, spent the next 23 years uh, uh, as CEO of the Quality Deer Management Association. And that's where most uh, probably of your listeners, if they know me at all, would have heard of me through my efforts there. And as part of that effort for 23 years, I uh, spent a lot of time in Michigan, working Michigan issues. Michigan was always in our top one or two or three uh, membership states and always at the forefront of, of efforts, uh, grassroots efforts, and uh, just really a, a great state. So I've got a, a tremendous amount of friends up there to this day. Mm-hmm. And uh, I retired from QDMA uh, in March, uh, took a couple of months off and just really tried to see what retirement was all about, and fishing and, and, uh, and enjoying life. And then uh, just a, a month ago, I joined uh, uh, Hunt Stand. Hunt Stand is uh, one of the global leaders in the app hunting uh, and navigation app technology and i handle the strategic partnerships for hunt stand now and i work part-time for them and uh, the rest of the time i hunt fish and enjoy try to perfect the uh, semi-retirement lifestyle wow hey we really appreciate uh, being from michigan and us michiganders here we really appreciate uh, we'll call it your partnerships that you established with us uh with qdma that's outstanding boy i i gotta say though i'm i'm backing up a little bit when you went to your parents and told them what you uh, want to be when you grow up, we'll say, uh, boy, you stayed focused. Holy smokes! Yeah, I, uh, I'm, 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 I'm blessed that I, I, I knew at a young age. I mean, I, you know, a lot of people become hunters late, late in life or at some stage of their life. Uh, others know they're destined to do certain things. I mean, it's, it just feels right when they do something, whether it's their profession or their their advocacy, their their, their hunting, fishing, whatever it may be. And I just knew uh, at a young a young age that the only thing that would make me happy was was working in the hunting, fishing, angling world, specifically the hunting world. And uh, I'm I'm a passionate hunter to to the nth degree. And uh, anybody who knows me knows that. But uh, but there's a million millions of like me, and that's what makes uh, makes the hunting industry so great. There's millions of us that, that share that common passion that only hunters understand. Boy, that's for sure. Amen to that. Absolutely. So when we look at what you're doing today, you were obviously spending a, a life, a, a career life with uh, QDMA, and now spending some time with Hunt Stand. Obviously, that's a, a gear shifter. You 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 shifted gears or got out of one vehicle totally into another one, but still participating in the hunting and fishing lifestyle. Yeah, actually, I see a natural, uh, for me, it was a natural stepping stone because QDM, the philosophy and the organization was really about change, changing the paradigm of deer management, which was grossly needed when, when the organization started in the 80s, when hunters were harvesting every possible buck and you know, cropping off the entire age class of year and a half old bucks every year, not shooting enough does, deer herds were sick, basically, and the, the, the medicine they needed was quality deer management. You know, that paradigm now has invaded the, the world, essentially, and has become the common practice of how to manage deer. And so QDM was a philosophy, a tool, a, a paradigm, whatever you want to describe it as. I see HuntStand. HuntStand has technology, and technology is the next step, yes. uh, you know, in terms of how hunters uh, 
manage land, how they hunt, how they navigate land, and, and so what, all the functionality that Hunt Stand offers, which is incredible, everything from knowing what soil types you have to property neighbors' information to just how far it is from your stand to the edge of the wood line when you want to make a shot. I mean, you don't even need a you know a rangefinder anymore with this technology. It, it functions as that. It functions as a, a food plot acreage calculator for you, so you don't need to know all the fancy formulas to determine food plot acreage. I mean, just on and on and on. Weather, the latest weather predictive weather patterns for the next several days a scent cone that tells you for every stand what is your zone of, of danger of getting detected versus your green or safe zone and on and on so i, I look at this as a next step uh, and in a way for me to, to impact uh millions of hunters uh as we as we did through qdm but millions of hunters through technology so to me it's just a a natural step for me boy that's for sure amen to that i agree well there's just so much available i had no idea just what you had it kind of reiterated just now what's available with hunt stand i mean i looked at it uh, some time ago and and of course knowing that you and i were doing this podcast i re-reviewed it we'll say and i was amazed at what's available and it's probably what is there is so much more than the average hunter will ever use but certainly at their disposal or at their fingertips I look at it much like a smartphone. You know, many of us use, you know, half a quarter uh, of the functionality, but it's there for those that need the, the additional functionality. And so you can use it as simply as you want for, for just, you know, weather information and your hunting property and maps and your food plots and your deer stands to much more of these more sophisticated uh, tools that can do a lot of things that, that really professional biologists and foresters can use. So really it's all available to you. Use what you want beauty of it is it's a whopping it's most of it's free there's a free version and a pro version we have two million people using the free version completely free uh and if you want all the bells and whistles it's a whopping 25 bucks a year so it's it's just not expensive technology you know when it comes to the other costs of 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 your hunting anyway well that's for sure absolutely you look at uh 25 bucks i mean what that's uh half a tank of gas heading to your tree stand yeah 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 um Looking at you, Brian Murphy, and I mean, I'm kind of again using that uh, phrase, dialing back. You're you're finishing up your stint, we'll say, your four four years, and um, at at the land down under, hey mate. And so they you you decide to come back to the United States and uh, call the United States home. But your your new adventures with QDM and kind of give us a. Uh, maybe a, a thumbnail sketch of what was happening at the time what what drove your you to qdm and what was driving qdm at the time to look at brian murphy and say hey we got to create this partnership because this thing's got to move forward in the united states well, sure so you know uh as i indicated I, I i moved from texas to georgia to do my graduate work back in the around 1990 and when i arrived out here in the southeast uh, I met a gentleman named Joe Hamilton, and uh, Joe Hamilton uh, was a South Carolina biologist who had just started a, a small little organization at the time in 1988, had formed it two years prior, called the South Carolina Quality Deer Management Association. And uh, it was two years old. At that time, it was still a state-only, state-specific organization, and I was in Georgia. Uh, but I, you know, I, I, I believed in the philosophy because the philosophy came from Texas, came from Al Brothers, who I mentioned earlier, a Texas biologist. And, and so when I moved from Texas out here, I was already indoctrinated. So when I got to the southeast and found an organization promoting basically a, a philosophy that originated in Texas, it made sense. So I joined. So I joined this South Carolina group. 
and a year later it became a national organization because they started getting so many uh, members from other states that I went through a couple of name changes, but when it did, it offered charter life membership. So I, I joined, I was a student, a poor graduate student, but I, I joined as a charter life member, one of 37 people in 1991 uh, who who were the founding members of the of what is now the Quality Deer Management Association, the national organization. Uh, and then I disappeared for the four years and went down under. Well, while, while I was away, uh, the founder, Joe Hamilton, came out and visited me in Australia and said, hey, mate, when you get back, we want you to, 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 to spearhead the QDMA. I said, well, that's great. You know, let's wait until we get back, and we'll discuss it then. And so you know, four years later, I got back, and uh, he and the, the then board of directors kind of cornered me around a fire pot one night uh, and said, hey, you know, we, we do want you to take over the reins of the organization. Now, mind you, the organization had exactly one half-time employee at the time, the founder's wife, who ran the office. <laughs> that was it. Uh, they literally were functioning out of a wooden, you know, 15 by 15 building in their backyard. That oh, was the wow. national headquarters. Um, so this was not an organization to take over as much as it was an idea, a movement, an early movement. Um, and, and finally, I went to my my wife and said hey will you give me three years to give a you know make make a go at this and she said yes and you know i went to the board and said all right i'll do it and so uh i called our founder joe and said hey i'm in and uh he loaded up our assets uh, everything we owned after nine years of of, of surviving uh and put them in the back of an el camino those <laughs> listeners know what that is um uh, and dr- drove them to a rental house that i had at the time and we moved the qdma into my upstairs 10 by 10 bedroom that was our national office. You were moving up. Uh, you were moving up. Yeah. We were moving up. It was upstairs, so we had moved up. We yes. moved from an out, out, outside building to an upstairs uh, <laughs> spare, spare bedroom. Sweet. Uh, yeah, and he handed over the entire assets of the organization financially, and it was $142 in change. And uh, that was the beginning of, of, of my start with the organization. So I had a fancy title then, but, yeah. but, but, but literally I did everything there was to do, as you can imagine, as a staff of one. Yeah. And uh, so we lived in my, my upstairs bedroom for a while, and I went out on the road and traveled all over the country, including stops in Michigan and New York, and others were kind of a traveling road show for a couple of years, trying to build support, and finally we got momentum. And, and about that time, states like Michigan, states like Pennsylvania, others were starting to really catch on to this, this movement, Absolutely. and it started to grow organically. And uh, we went from, a, uh, like three, thir- I think we had 3,000 members when I started, and uh, you know, at our high point uh, here recently it was just over sixty thousand. So, oh my. you know, pre- pretty big, pretty big uh, growth curve. And, and really, what was most rewarding of my career with QDMA was the, the people. Uh, I met just thousands of the best people in the world, and, and people who are truly committed to the resource, who put in their blood, sweat, and tears, and their pocketbooks to, to make the habitat better. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, if, if we've had a contribution as an organization, it was we've improved the lives of millions of people through their hunting experiences and their connection to earth yes but also but also thousands and hundreds of thousands of acres of, of habitat for all wildlife not just deer and uh so yeah it's a, that's a huge impact um when you say thousands of people and and i know what you mean by that but i gotta believe too is not all those people i mean that's a, that you talked about a, about sixty thousand people but not all those people are hunting and fishing enthusiasts a lot of them are just you know basic conservationists right yeah we actually had a uh, i don't know what the percentage was and it wasn't huge but it would it would be somewhat under 10 percent, but still significant of our member base who just practiced the, the concepts of quality deer management without the hunting piece yeah uh that just enjoyed the habitat and learning about the animal and what plants deer eat and how to 
kill invasive plants and how to do these things that uh, are just good for conservation. So yeah, we we certainly had a core of uh, of non-hunting uh, members that uh, that were just as committed. Yeah, absolutely, and that is a key component, I would think, uh, in any organization is you know that's uh, focused, but the peripherals are equally important and sometimes get overlooked and uh, and maybe not you know uh, looked at or reached out to and those people offer some great services some great support and when we need to reach out to the uh, the non-corp society of say in this case hunting and fishing and reach out it's important that we have those people that uh, you know are uh, also supporting our efforts of hunting and fishing though they don't they do not participate in that particular activity no absolutely and a well-informed hunter should never lose an argument to an uninformed non-hunter about why we harvest the wild animals that we do in sustainable landscapes that's good for society health-wise nothing more organic than the wild game we harvest nothing more sustainable on landscapes than wild game production versus you know livestock production and, and agribusness so you should I always love to get into those those arguments because I haven't lost one of them. Uh, they're really quite easy to win because you can turn it on them real quick if you have just a, a few of your facts together. Yeah, absolutely. Is there some or I should say, are there online tools that people such as hunters and fishermen or just basic conservationists can go to with QDM that can become better educated? Not to say win this argument, I think we all can win the argument, but um, be become a better uh, informed person on the approach so that we come across during a say an argument in a coffee shop or at hunting camp or at a family reunion or wherever it might be that you know we can chit chat this conversation in a uh, logical uh, fashion instead of getting uh, maybe sidetracked and not losing it, but. Uh, perception-wise, uh, maybe not coming across as informed or uh, eloquent as we should be. Yeah, yeah, there's plenty of materials out there. I think just a quick Google search will find quite a number of uh, papers written as well as uh, even books uh, written by, by very noted authorities on, on kind of the hunting culture and the North American model. People like Sh- uh, Shane Mahoney from uh, Canada is actually a, gl- a global leader on the North American model, which is mostly a U.S.-based model. You have people like Jim Swan, who's written extensively on it. Uh, Jim Posowitz uh, has written extensively on it. There are a number of authors who have, have written eloquently on on why we hunt. Uh, Dr. Richard Louvre uh, produced yes. a book called uh, Last Child in the Woods, which is a profound look at why hunting is important for the development of humans. Yes, uh, that, that I mean, just fundamental psychological important uh, aspects of of outside recreation, hunting, fishing, angling, uh, as opposed to group play. So there's a a lot of places people can get uh, better informed. And boy, today, that that, uh, Dr. Luth, uh, I mean, that that publication today should resonate as strong as ever. I think we're we're feeling a lot of uh, emotional roller coaster rides with a lot of things that are going on. But certainly, uh, you know, we we all are uh, sometimes, I should say right now, paused at a point where where a lot of deep thinking has taken place and and some you know some concerns etc but uh, mm-hmm. now now might be a perfect time to uh to grab a hold of some of those publications and brush up I, I, 
absolutely. I mean, I think we're at a, a pivotal time uh, in our country right now, and in fact, in the world, where people are getting back to the basics. And uh, yeah. you know, this forced isolation time. What is what is better isolation time than spending time in the in the woods with your family or by yourself? Either one. Yeah. And and hunting and fishing and, and connecting with with your with your past. I mean, so. Yeah. Nothing is better for that than, than than the great outdoors. And in fact, we're seeing uh, upticks in you know our spring turkey numbers look really strong across much of the country. I think the hunting participation is going to be strong there. Yeah. Same with the fishing. I think this this fall is going to be a record hunting year in at least in the last several. So uh, I think it has uh, has been a positive thing in many respects for that reconnection to the outdoors. Yes, indeed, I I agree totally with you saying that we did a. We do a uh, some guiding at Wild Game Dynasty on turkey, bear, and deer, and though we had to uh, hit the pause button a little bit on having some um, some hunters come into turkey camp, we were able to, with some creative thinking, uh, pull some of it off. But we've turned down twice as many people as we normally do, and with bear camp now, um, you know we're on the eve of that. September's bear season in Michigan. September a little bit of October. Um, our numbers of inquiries are just uh, twofold, at least. Mm-hmm. And we're yeah. having a lot of people reach out to us and say, hey, I want a bear hunt, but I hear there's a point system in place that Michigan has. How does that work? So we're you know, informing those people because they're looking at down the road. Obviously, it's spurring interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a great thing. So, I mean, I, I really appreciate that. Well, you came uh, recommended. I know you and I talked about that for our listeners. So, uh we did our podcast with uh, what you know a lot of Michigan Michiganders understand who John Azaga is and where that Cousinaw Research Center was in the UP. I say was, and it was an interesting podcast. But boy, he he referred to you a couple of times and really uh, you know really encouraged people to um, to reach out to some of the work that you have done and really acclaimed the work that QDMA had, had did and um, you know it, it was it was interesting so therefore I reached out to you and thus we're chatting today can you maybe uh, bring a little bit of the Michigan flavor into this conversation yeah I, I think uh, I've got a, a fairly good perspective uh, having been involved with with the deer management movement for 25 years I can at least go back that far and 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 to my early days of QDMA because it wasn't long uh, after I took the the uh, the rudder of the QDMA ship, that I met a gentleman named Ed Spinazzola, and uh, many of your older listeners would would know that he's from the Clare, Michigan area, yes. and uh, you know he uh, he was indoctrinated in quality deer management uh, fairly early, and came back as as what I would call the Johnny Appleseed of of Michigan, and uh, literally just went around working shows one after the other. Uh, wrote a couple of books that were quite uh, quite popular, sold thousands and thousands of those on food plots, and, and yeah. really brought quality. The, the I would say the Michigan uh, version of quality deer management uh, to to the state. And uh, you know, certainly there are many many other pioneers out there. Uh, some of many of them are still active today. People like Tony Smith, Brian Roosh, Paul Plantinga over in the Thumb. I mean, I could name literally dozens and dozens of, of folks in your state who have just done a, a tremendous job for many, many years of, of, of providing good information. Uh, and and uh, so what, what happened is, and, and this was not unexpected, you know, in, in my days with QDMA, a lot of people intuitively thought that people from big buck states, because they thought QDMA was about big bucks. And so they would think that, you know, Iowa and Kansas and 
Illinois would be our, our core membership states. And, and frankly, it wasn't. It was those states who, uh, in which the, 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 the hunters wanted change the most. Uh, and, and so we, we saw great you know, response from states like Michigan and Minnesota, Pennsylvania, New York, uh, the Carolinas, places where hunters were frustrated with what they had. And so, you know, if you go back to the early 90s uh, with early to mid 90s uh, in Michigan, you know, buck age structure was poor. Uh, hunters were frustrated, particularly hunters who had read about what was going on in other parts of the country, other states. Why can't we, you know, enjoy something similar to Wisconsin just next door that produces, you know, a lot of older age class bucks, a lot of trophy caliber bucks. And, and so it was really a desire to change that, that sparked this whole movement uh, across, across Michigan. And that continues today. Uh, you know, hunters in that state continue to be frustrated. Frankly, many of them have made uh, great strides where they live, depending on which part of the state. Mm -hmm. um, most of that is through voluntary participation through co-ops. Yes. Uh, co-ops are huge in Michigan, and, and that's a that's a strategy that anybody who, you know, even if they only have access to a 40 uh, or an 80 or, or, or a small tract of land, doesn't mean you can't be part of deer management. It just means you have to to be more creative and work with neighbors and, and do some things a little a little differently than if you're blessed to have a larger property. And so we've seen this change uh, occur. You know, Michigan has made huge strides. It's still challenged, uh, and it will be because you have one of the largest hunting populations of any state in the nation. And, yeah. you know, for example, you know, you have about uh, three times the number of deer hunters in your state that I have in my home state of Georgia, which is almost the same size as your state and almost the same deer density as your state. So our states are very similar, other than the fact that you have three hunters for every one hunter we have here. Mm. And so the politics of trying to make three hunters happy as opposed to one make it very difficult. Yeah. Uh, there's, the resource is only you know, so large and can only accommodate so many people, some of which just want to shoot a deer, some want to shoot a three-year-old buck, some you know, want to do this, some want to do that. So you, it's harder to make that many people happy. So therein lies the basis of a lot of the conflict that has existed in your state for, for many years and will continue to exist. It's a, it's a natural function of, 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 of a resource that people are so passionate about. Yeah, absolutely. I know we, we talked uh, before we uh, hit the record button on this podcast about QDMA versus uh, some other topics such as maybe APR, but uh, and that's a whole different topic. We certainly won't, uh, you know, we, we just don't have the time to discuss something like that. But reference that, I had to have to bring mm -hmm. it up in this framework that I remember getting into a conversation with a, you know, there was three or four of us, uh, and we were in camp and we we're chit chatting about it. One person says, you know, I just, you know, why does somebody have to tell me? And it went into that conversation that you could see uh -huh. some angst. You could hear the angst. You could see it in his face. Uh -huh. And I basically bounced back and said, you know, this is a voluntary situation. We don't want to have to uh, dictate, but um, it sure is nice when we're looking at improving the quality. None of us ever talked about uh, that the improved quality means that, you know, somebody has to shoot a 140-inch uh, uh, Pope and Young-type buck. Right. But, but certainly the age or the genetic side of things, um, the you know the the biology side of things, not the not not the bone you know on the on right. the buck's head, but the biology side of things should cause us to uh, you know maybe um, you know should cause some concern that we should possibly uh, make some changes that uh, well, yeah, are better and, for the and better that's for where the I came from as as a as both a hunter and a biologist. You know, my, my, my take on quality deer management was always one. We have an obligation as the managers of this resource, which hunters are. The agencies only set framework. 
the, the managers themselves are the hunters and the landowners who actually affect the land and the herd. And so, you know, as a biologist looking at herds that in human terms, uh, that of the old traditional deer days. So if you compared that to humans, it would be women of all age classes, you know, in other words, from little girls to grandmas, and then no, no male in the population over 12 years old. Just think of a human population trying to function that out of balance. Yeah. And also, and also too many mouths to feed many cases. So you've got too many mouths and you've got this very distorted sex ratio and age structure. Yeah. And so quality management really first and foremost was about restoring balance as much as we can and it's not perfect balance because we're not getting bucks to super old age classes we're just trying to get them into the middle ages to where at least we have some 20 and 30 and maybe some 40 year old men in the population yeah. uh, and not not quite as many ladies on the other side and 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 not quite as many mouths yeah and so it was about restoring some semblance of balance and yes a byproduct is at least a you know a three and a half type year old buck which is a nice buck and and you know everybody can be happy there but APRs, you know, I've said it a thousand times if I've said it once, they're just a tool. Uh, they're a tool, just as bag limits are, just as season length and structure are, as weapon, weapon restrictions. They're a way, one way, to limit harvest. Yeah. Uh, there are many ways to do that. Yes, uh, you absolutely. Can do, you can do quotas. You can do the, the, the loved earn-a-buck program. You mm-hmm. can do a lot of things. Um to, to, to achieve the same end result. It's just one of those tools. Amen to uh, that, a, absolutely. You know, it's, it's a controversial tool, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting one in that we're almost, almost without exception. They've been used, you know, uh, dozens of states and hundreds of locations. Uh, almost without exception, support for them increases over time. Yeah. Uh, so it's one of those, I hate to say, medicines that the the, uh, the 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 hunter may not even know he or she needs, and then they take it and they go, "Wow, I actually like this more than I thought." Mm-hmm. Uh, but but at the same token, you know, uh, I, I'm no longer affiliated with QD, QDMA, but it was always our mantra when I was there that we would prefer it to be voluntary yes. because when it's voluntary, it's more flexible. Uh, you have those exceptions for those situations for for new hunters or yeah. what have you. Um, you know, but in some cases, the the, the reality is that uh, some sort of mandatory APR is needed, at least as a jumpstart mechanism, because it's just so difficult to get that many people to change enough to give it a chance. Yeah. So, so there are situations where, you know, again, wearing my old QDMA hat, we would oppose APRs, and there were situations where we'd support them. Yeah, uh, but we had a very strict criteria about it, and, and we always said we preferred it to be voluntary. Yeah. You know, I did a podcast with a couple of fellows here from the uh, Bay City, Michigan area, and I knew one of them I had not known his hunting partner. They, they have some leased property in the uh, uh, northern lower peninsula here, and, and they practice QDM and uh, a little bit of the APR stuff. But, and he shared, or they shared, a lot of these same publication authors that you had mentioned, and that's where they derived their decisions to kind of move forward with their properties and it's completely voluntary and he said too he says hey we have a, a guy that owns about 250 acres on what that borders one of our properties but at the same time they're not you know it's not a brown and down situation um he's got some young grandkids and uh, and they want to you know implement some early success with those kids and and he says hey, hey they're friends they're not enemies it's voluntary but like you had said and i'm kind of maybe uh, jumping ahead here, but I'm thinking organically is how it's to grow. And uh, when it does that versus, hey, this is what we're doing, you know, uh, yesterday was then and today's today, 
organically is so much nicer and so much, uh, I shouldn't say warm and fuzzy, but people can embrace that because it, it moved in the direction that it did based off the, uh, uh, you know, the, the way that the, uh, the palate, the taste was uh, heading. So, so again, there's you know there's parts of Michigan that are under APRs now, some that, that were that have been removed due to CWD uh, regulations, etc. So there's, it's a complex and, and very controversial issue. Uh, you know, you're in most cases a hunter is either very passionate about it or very well one way or the other, uh, yeah. either for or against. Yeah. Uh, so it's a very emotive situation. But but I always try to bring it back to center and say, hey, you know, we're all here for the same reason. We all want healthy deer. We want yeah. sustainable deer. We have huge pressures out there with CWD, with all of that. We have huge pressures with changing hunter uh, support for hunting. Uh, we have you know things like hemorrhagic disease sneaking into the state for the first time in, in decades and causing its own problems. So we need to be more united than fractured. Yes, and and there are some key issues I think that hunters can unite around and, and should unite around, and those being disease management. I mean, that's one of the biggest ones right now. Hunter decline. Uh, as much as you know, a short-sighted hunter may say, "Hey, that's great that Michigan hunting numbers are down 200,000 in the last two, uh, 10 years. There's fewer of us out there competing for the same resource." That also means there's fewer voters, fewer people spending, you know, Pittman-Robertson excise tax dollars that support yep. communities. We're becoming a, a less relevant group of, of, of people to society. Only four percent of Americans hunt. Yeah, we're, we're very blessed that. We, we enjoy what we do, given that there's few activities that only 4% of Americans participate in that enjoy, yeah. currently at least, the yeah. level of public support that hunting does. Absolutely. Every every step, every move we uh, we enjoy in the out-of-doors in this quest to hunt, fish, recreate, needs to be really thought out. Every uh, decision we make, it's not to say we're not going to make mistakes, but um, certainly we have to be less reckless of our actions and our words out there and be more in tune to uh what we uh what we're doing and how we're how we're doing it and it's really important that our message whether it be uh, a visual message or an auditory message or something like that or even a written message if we uh you know send a uh, uh, uh a letter to the editor we'll say uh to right. local it has to well, be, has well, to be well, one thing we, we already touched on one hot potato in your state and that's aprs and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll address another one, and that is the relationship between hunters and your state wildlife agency. And it's a very polarizing relationship in many states, so it's not unique to Michigan. Uh, but but really, it's, it's it's saddening to me, and I won't place the blame all on the hunters or on the agency. I both uh, I think there's some some equal blame to share for that fractured relationship for sure. Uh, but what I will say, having not only lived abroad, worked abroad, hunted abroad. I can tell you without hesitation that what hunters enjoy in this country is unique to North America. There's no place on the planet that the average working class citizen can can go out and recreate like we do for such a low cost on so many acres of both public as well as private land. I mean, there's a cost, obviously, to some private land, but we have it as good as it gets in the world. And our wildlife management system literally is the envy of the world. There is no place on the planet that enjoys what we have and has as much resources at the state agency level that, that our hunters benefit from. So as much as it's easy to poke poke the bear yes. uh, in Lansing or wherever it may be, uh, you've got to step back and realize these are <laughs> most of these people, the vast majority of the people that work in these state wildlife agencies grew up just like I did, loving to hunt and fish in the outdoors. I mean, obviously some don't, uh, and unfortunately an increasing number don't, but, but many do. Uh, many absolutely love the resource, and they're there trying to do the best they can 
and they get beat on by the public, and some of it's deserved. But I just ask everybody to take a breath sometimes and really think through what they're doing oh, and boy. understand it is pretty darn good, and, and an improved relationship can make it even better. And, Brian, I really appreciate you bringing that up. I know it's uh, you know sometimes not a warm and fuzzy topic to bring up, but we need to hear that more and more, and we need to hear it from people that have, have traveled and have worked with uh, more than just outside of our uh, little corner of the world because I agree with you. I've heard that time and time again from people that, like yourself, have experienced uh, other uh, forms of government, other forms of leadership that manage uh, our outdoor resources and, and what is or is not available you know, outside of the state of Michigan, let alone outside the, the United States of Michigan. What's, you know, we've got it pretty good and, and um and we don't want to lose anything regarding that, but it, it certainly is a uh, is a uh, topic to reiterate back to all of us to say, hey, you know, easy now, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, easy. It's, it's just it's just about perspective yeah. and balance and trying to keep a, a, a reasonable perspective of, of of everything as it relates to the outdoors. And it's an emotional subject. I'm as passionate about my deer and my fishing as, as anybody, but you have to step back and really try to be moderate and thoughtful. Uh, and make wise comments and not just jump in bed with the rabble rousers because it sounds like the right thing to say. <laughs> Boy, that's so true. Man, I'm glad you brought that up. Boy, is that ever true. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, there's so much at our fingertips. It's uh, It can be abused, and it also is a uh, opportunity to learn more about before we do open up that Pandora's box and decide to uh, get on a uh, soapbox and begin talking. Um, we've got no excuse when it comes to doing our own local research. We sure have the ab- ability or the available resources to do our own bit of research. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Information is power. And unfortunately, the Internet can be a, a great source of information, but it can also be a, a bastion for those who yeah. wish to rename, re- remain anonymous and throw barbs for the sake of throwing barbs. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, so, so just uh, again, perspective. Yeah. But you know, again, there are some things that hunters can can really, I think, focus around, and that is, you know, working together uh, on, you know, and uh, around disease issues, uh, working with their neighbors, yeah. uh, re- recruiting people from from their communities that that want to hunt. Uh, yeah. You know, we uh, when I was at QDMA, we pioneered a program called Field to Fork, and Field to Fork really is targeted at adults who wish to become hunters, primarily for food, but not just for food. And we found it so incredibly easy to recruit adults who, who desire to hunt. There are, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of adults scattered across our country in our schools, in our churches, in our workplaces, uh, wherever they may be, that, that you'd be shocked that they actually want to hunt. And, and, and we, we even offered uh, how to become a hunter training within the QDMA staff and found three people that we had no idea uh, hmm. uh, that wanted to hunt, that who are too timid or too quiet at, in their 40s or 50s to say, yeah, I'd like to try this, but I've always been intimidated. So, uh, you know, our obligation as hunters today is to, is to be informed, to obviously follow the rules and regulations, buy our licenses, do the right thing, but it's also to recruit somebody to replace ourselves yeah. at the minimum. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's an obligation now. It's not just something we should do. It's something we must do yeah, absolutely. If, if, if hunter numbers, if hunting is going to survive into the, into the future and increasingly, uh, these hunters need to not look like I look. Uh, I'm a mid 50 year old white guy with no hair. Uh, <laughs> most, most, most American hunters look like me. Yeah. Uh, and, and unfortunately I don't look like most of America anymore and we're going to have to become more diverse, both gender and ethnicity. 
uh, if hunting is going to be relevant and survive. And I don't Boy, think we've done a good enough job there. That's for sure. Absolutely. Boy, we have to uh, send a uh, thank you out to the ladies out there. Our, our new emerging group of uh, hunters making up what I've read different statistics, but if we if we didn't have those, we probably would be uh, on the outside looking in. Well, hundred you know female hunter numbers are up uh, th- you know threefold in the last fifteen years, and so they're they're now I think around and Michigan's a, a leading shining star there. I think somewhere in the neighborhood of I don't know the exact figures, but twelve to fifteen percent of hunters in Michigan are female. And that, that's above the national average. And so there are a number of, of very active female hunters, and that, that's growing. Both of my daughters, I have an 18- and 20-year-old daughter. Both of them hunt and, and love the outdoors. And they don't feel out of place being young adult women hunters. And that's nice. cool yeah, uh, that absolutely. they grow up in America and not feel out of place. Absolutely. Well, you know, we on this same topic, we did a podcast a couple of times for a couple of different uh, topics with a uh, – he's a – politician he's a representative in uh, pennsylvania i can't recall the uh the district that he uh, represents a county area but um, um david maloney representative maloney uh introduced a bill it took 10 years of his career but he was so proud of the fact that he introduced and it morphed into the into a law that finally got passed obviously it's a law but uh, he introduced a law that or a bill excuse me that um allowed for um, hunter education be taught in the schools after the school hours, but obviously in the in the public building, at no cost to the public. And he said, "What a what a uh, milestone for him because he knew it wasn't something that he was wanting to force feed, but he knew there was a lot of folks out there given the opportunity, given the opportunity to take this hunter safety class, and then of course that tools needed to kind of proceed further." In the hunting side of things, it it gave them that initial exposure um, that maybe you know they would not have had otherwise, and so he's he's pretty proud of that. He said it sounds like a simple little bill that I introduced, but he said it boy it took a long time, and it finally. Oh, that's that, yeah, that's a huge lift, and you know one thing that's really encouraging to me, and and somebody who follows the the research in this area pretty closely, if you look at the the data which has been collected since the seventies on public support for hunting and and the percentage of of Americans who desire to hunt, how many do hunt, et cetera, et cetera. We have seen uh, no change, if anything, a slight uptick in those Americans who desire to hunt. In other words, just as many people today desire to hunt as they did in the 70s and 80s. That's a positive thing. Yes, it is. Uh, The the barrier is that we are not as rural a society as we were in the 70s and 80s. You know, we're a much more urban society and an increasing number of families are one to three generations removed from having a hunter in their family. And most hunter recruitment occurs in the family. Yeah. And so, so that therein lies the problem. The problem is not, uh, you know, that no one wants to hunt. That's not the problem. The problem is there's not enough people willing to step outside of their family unit and, and recruit somebody, a friend, a family, a neighbor kid, and say, I will recruit, I'll mentor you if you would desire to hunt. And so there, that's the that's the challenge we have moving forward. It's not creating interest in hunting. That's, a lot of people think that's the barrier. No, the barrier is finding enough mentors, people wow. willing to step up and say, yes, I'll do it. And I'll take a couple of days out of my own season uh, to, to, to take you, and maybe I'll even let you access my property, maybe harvest an antlerless deer, maybe a buck, who knows, maybe squirrels, rabbits, or pheasants, uh, but, but, but take them out to, until they're uh, self-identifying as a hunter. In other words, fledged enough they feel comfortable going on their own that's when a hunter self-identifies as i can do it because you know as, as i've found mentoring 
you know, dozens if not hundreds of hunters throughout my career is there's always a concern over can I make the shot at the time of truth? Can I make the shot, uh, an ethical kill? But there's just as big a barrier, if not more of a barrier, once they have an animal down. They walk up and they find a dead, the dead deer laying there. What do I do now? Uh, because to someone who's never experienced that, A, there's a, obviously a huge emotional rush to start with, but then there's the reality of I've got a 150-pound, 200-pound animal laying there. I may be by myself. I may be half mile from the road or the camp. What do I do? How do yeah. I field dress it? How do I get it out? What do, yeah. How do I process it when I get it get it out, out of here if I don't have a, a butcher or a commercial processor? So those are the things that must, must be taught. It doesn't happen by osmosis. Um, and, and YouTube's a poor substitute for one-on-one training. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it so, is. So, so, so that's the call I have, if anything, my message to, to the viewers, uh, the listeners rather, is, is, is to really make a, make a commitment to at least reaching out to somebody. Yeah. Find somebody and, and teach them. You'll be so rewarded that it'll, it'll blow your mind how satisfying it is when that, that person next to you pulls the trigger on their first animal and you're part of that process. Yeah. And they buy their they buy their first hunting license and go on their own without you and are successful. You, you're, it's a very special feeling. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. I had a, a short story about a, a gentleman that uh, is north of me here, and he has a pheasant put-take, uh, we'll call it a ranch, but it's... Uh, it's, not, it's less than that, but it's a very nice experience here. We, it's something that I had not experienced growing up because uh, we'll call it pheasant hunting. Where I was from in the uh, uh, lower uh, lower of Michigan was so prevalent. I remember my dad coming home, and you know, we during pheasant season it was almost every night. And uh, I just you know I stood and watched at the window until he drove in from uh, working at the uh, at the shop at the auto plant. So, anyways, uh, but this this gentleman at the uh, pheasant put take he says you know i had a guy call me and he came up here with his buddies had a great time and he just you know they were they had some dogs that they were training and and just wanted to run their dogs he said hey i have uh, two grandkids 12 and 13 that um would like to come pheasant hunting i think i want to talk to them but he said i i just i don't dare take them out and set them in a deer stand and let them sit half a day and see three deer or take them out grouse hunting and maybe not connect he said i need some pretty uh not instant results but i need some some results that happen faster than it did when i was a kid because of the the you know the 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 generation that has been trained for i would say instant gratification but quicker gratification so he took them there they had a great time the the people that run the pheasant put take ranch um, one of the uh, gentlemen's uh, wives came out and worked with uh, the gal, and then, of course, uh, they had a guy that worked with a young man, and then the grandpa, he brought his own dog, and, and he said, well, what do I do? And he says, bring your gun. You might shoot too, but do not worry about your grandkids. We got it, we got it covered. We're going to run this thing safe, safely. They shot a couple pheasants. They had a great time. Afterwards, you know, the kids kind of jumped in the vehicle, and they're getting ready to take off at the end of that half-a-day hunt, and, the old crocodile tears are rolling down grandpa's face. <laughs> and, and he says, oh, my gosh. He says, I just can't believe it. And he says, I thought I lost this generation. I really did. Because I says, my, my two sons had no interest in it. Thus, these kids are from one of my sons. And he said, I think I've got them hooked. And he said, you might. He said, bring them back. He said, but don't, don't poo-poo the idea of taking them out into the, uh, the great outdoors and not having instant gratification. There's a lot to be seen out there. It doesn't have to be putting a tag on a deer. You know, there's a lot of critters out there that are fun to watch. Absolutely. No, I couldn't have said it better. And, and the other thing that I'll, I'll share with uh, 
the, uh, the the parents out there, if you have young daughters or sons, either one, uh, make it about them and their experience. So if you go out, make sure if they're young, you have plenty of snacks and toys and games. Yeah, you're going to make noise, and you're probably going to spook some deer off that you could have otherwise shot. But it's got to be a fun experience for them, first and foremost. Uh, limit that first uh, shot opportunity to one that you have as high a probability that you know they'll make. Don't let them take that Hail Mary shot before they're ready because a, a wounded first animal is not a great experience. It could happen even under the best of circumstances, but really control the environment. That's my words of wisdom there. But as a parent, you know, one thing I've cherished with both my daughters is the, the, the forced alone time that, that hunting offers uh, that you don't get. And, and I've spent hunt thousands of hours with my daughters in deer stands and we've talked and shared aspirations, dreams, uh, whatever's going on in their, in their life, things that I would have not had as a father uh, with my daughters. Uh, and I, I just encourage any parent to spend as much time in a deer stand with their children because in today's fast-paced world, we don't get those blocks of two and three and four hours to just sit there quietly with our children. Yeah. And uh, I, I couldn't, as a parent, couldn't couldn't recommend that any stronger. I think that's the best therapy for, between parent and child you could possibly could have. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, just kind of wrapping this up, I'm looking at the timeline, but uh, to keep this, uh, you know, kind of inside that uh, optimum podcast time, for, but just what you said, teaming that up to the new company that you're affiliated with, that you work with, thus bringing in, you know, the hunt stand technology for the, for the younger generation. And boy, that, I mean, there couldn't be a better implementation of the old and the new. Well, no question. I mean, today's young hunter expects technology in their hand. They're going to have their phone anyway. They want to look on their on their phone and see right where they're sitting. They want to play with the the uh, the, the uh, function within the app that allows your scent cone to be shown where you are, so it tells you exactly you know how far out your your scent's drifting and what direction. They want to see you know what's going on with the neighbors. They can you know share their location with their in their food plots with their friends. I mean, there's all kinds of technology that gives them something to do while hunting that is hunting related, specific to their property and their day and so it's it's a great engagement in in a medium that they find natural that i didn't growing up yeah um i I use hunt stand for for my more management my hunting centric purposes but like i said it's kind of like a smartphone our kids use many of the functions in a smartphone that we don't (laughs) use that's important to them you know to me it's email texting and phone that's about where mine you know so so we're all different but you're right hunt stand's a great fit for for anybody out there and i encourage all your listeners to just look it up uh, like I said, the, the basic functionality is completely free. Download it, play with it. If you want all the bells and whistles, you can you can upgrade to Pro. Uh, but uh, if not, just use the, the free version. I think you'll find it very gratifying and, and uh, quite useful, in fact. Yeah, and ask your uh, ask your teenage kid or, or who, your young adult kid to uh, teach you how to run it. Exactly. And it's like <laughs> I was talking to, uh, I'll close with this, I was talking to a friend of mine who's my age in his 50s, and uh, he's an outfitter uh, like you and uh, has multiple properties he's outfitting. And, and I, I said, you know, have you used HuntStand? Well, no, I don't really use apps. Okay, well, he, he, he did. He, he downloaded it. He goes, wow, this, this is really cool. And I said, do, do you know also that HuntStand provides a printed map service? You can go in there and mark your property, add all your food plots and your roads, anything you want, stands, anything you want to add, and then hit hit send and anything from a small map to a giant wall size map you can purchase at a very reasonable price. And uh, he said, you're going to laugh. He said, I'm going to send you what my map looks like. And he sent me what probably your map <laughs> looks like too, Gary. You know, a, a, an old printed map with like magic marker and oh, shaded yellow. Oh, and man. Push, pin, push pins on it, oh. you know, magnets. And, and uh, I just had to laugh. And I said, hey, get your – he's got a young son, an 18-year-old son. I said, get your son to go in there. And, and I said, I, you probably can't do it, it's, even, even though it's dead easy. 
go in there and have your son, you know, mark your boundaries. And I said, I'll, I'll, I'll pay for you a map for your property. I'll upgrade for you, buddy. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, get a printed map too, if you want to through hunt stand. They're great. Hey, absolutely. Brian, this has been a great podcast. I appreciate, I appreciate you setting aside time on a busy schedule. And here we uh, are. Always, always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Yeah. Thank you so much. And, Thanks for your affiliation and uh, partnerships with uh, all all the states in the United States, but uh, certainly Michigan. Us uh, Michiganders appreciate that too, and all that you've done. And like you said, uh, we're we're so appreciative of the resources that we have. And uh, sometimes we just need to hit the pause button and say, "Hey, you know, just kind of look back and really understand that we are a blessed nation." We are indeed. We are indeed. All right, you take care, young man. Thank you. You as well. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. This week's podcast brought to you by Beckley's M65 Bait Store with two locations. Whether you need a full-service archery and sporting goods store in Whittemore or the best walleye headquarters on the shores of Au Gray, carrying Fat Boy and JT Bandit jigs, we have you covered. Beckley's is a third-generation expert in hunting and fishing supplies. Find us on Facebook or call 989-324-7111. And also brought to you by Bourbon Creek Gun Dogs and Guide, Northern Michigan's finest upland bird put-and-take preserve. Our private lands have been carefully groomed to give you a blue ribbon experience. Bring your dog or have our guide bring their expertly trained German short hair for a fun-filled day. At your request, we also guide on other properties. We are located in the heart of Michigan's elk country. Find us at bourboncreekgundogs.com or on Facebook, or call us 989-858-6799 to book your next upland bird hunting experience. I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's episode. Please head on over and check out our Facebook page. Be sure to like and follow it to stay up to date on highlights from our clients' turkey, bear, and white-tailed deer hunts. Until next time, stay safe and happy hunting.